in a parable of both foolish inability to plan for the future, as well as self-destructive arrogance, Blockbuster Video committed a devastating mistake 23 years ago. An upstart video company was seeking to grow a foothold in the market, and so the power brokers that, I guess, owned enough shares, enough of the, enough of the stake of this video company, offered it to Blockbuster for a mere $50 million. That's mere to them, not to us. Blockbuster, at that time, a behemoth in the home video market, declined the offer. Today, there is one independently owned Blockbuster video store remaining. It is in Bend, Oregon, if you're curious. Meanwhile, you and I know that upstart video company as Netflix. Blockbuster made a devastating mistake. You've probably not visited a Blockbuster video store recently. They're irrelevant to your world, to your entertainment desires, They're irrelevant to how you look through life in the year 2023. As Christians, we face the demands of our day. We subtly, and if we're not careful, we can subtly start to believe that Jesus belongs in the dustbin of history, along with Blockbuster and many other things that one time, sure, had their heyday, but in this ever-changing, ever-growing, ever-expanding, ever-evolving world, I'm not quite sure what Jesus has to do for me or with me today. That might be what you're thinking as you sit here. That might be what the demands and the pressures and the hardships of your life tell you as you try to navigate a faith that might seem as if it's supposed to be important today, and yet it feels like you're hanging out at Blockbuster in a world where everyone's streaming Netflix at home. But Luke 8, 40-56 shows us something far greater about our Lord. This passage actually enables us to see the relevance of Jesus to you and I right here, right now. You see, what I'm going to argue for you in Luke 8, 40-56 is that Jesus personally cares for us and the greatest needs we will ever face. Jesus personally cares for us, as well as whatever great needs we face. I invite you to follow along as I read from verse 40 to 56. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue, And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about twelve years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for twelve years, and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. And immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling 
and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had immediately been immediately healed. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, Arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. This is God's word. May he write its truths upon our hearts. May he show us the Savior who is the Lord of this word. As we consider how Jesus personally cares for us as well as the greatest needs we could possibly face, I want to begin by asking you a question. Where do you turn for help? Where do you turn for help? My aim throughout this sermon is to dissuade you from believing that Jesus is better left in time capsules, in postcards, in black and white television taking us back to Mayberry, and not in this busy, loud, vibrant world that we inhabit. My aim is to disabuse you of any notions that He is irrelevant to your life, and rather show you the relevancy, the sufficiency of Jesus for you no matter where you are, no matter what you face. My hope is for you to store the goodness of Jesus deep down in your heart, That it might be locked in a reservoir that continually releases living waters of His goodness, of His grace that flow through every vein, that flow through your heart, your mind, your soul, your thoughts, your hopes. And to do this, I want to begin by introducing you to a man named Jairus. Jairus ran to Jesus with a terribly devastating problem. Verse 42, or verse 40 tells us his 12-year-old daughter was dying. This passage tells us Jairus was a ruler of the synagogue. This is like an organizational leader, a member of the board of directors. This, as well as verse 40, where the crowds are waiting on Jesus, reveals that Jesus, who previously, as we saw in the passage last week, he had been in Gentile territory or non-Jewish territory. Now he has returned back to Jewish territory. It's interesting, in the Gentile territory, Jesus had uh, 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 driven the demons out of a demon-possessed man, and it terrified all the people who were around, and so they politely or demandingly asked Jesus to leave. So now Jesus arrives back in Jewish territory, and what does verse 40 tell us? When he returned, the crowd welcomed him. They had seen the miracles. They had heard the teaching. They thought he was on to something. And so Jairus runs to Jesus abandoning all decorum 
Because who cares about decorum when your 12-year-old daughter is near to death? And he runs and he pleads with Jesus to come to him. Perhaps you or a loved one might be battling terrible, life-threatening, world-altering sickness. Or you might be stuck in some rut of life where you wonder, where can I look for help? Why would the Lord put me in this rut? You feel like you're in a pit that you cannot climb out of. The walls every day seem to only get higher. Every item you check off the to-do list to be accomplished finds that it only unlocks five more items to put on the to-do list of the never-ending doctor's appointments or the never-ending phone calls. You know, the Christian life is in one sense a continual journey where we are faced with the question, yet again, will you trust the Lord? Oh, congratulations, you made it through that season. Now you find a new season. Will you trust the Lord? Do I trust God in this circumstance or in this stage of life? Young children, you begin to face this in school. As you start to play with other children your age, and you seek to find your place in the world, you, see, you, you find that it's difficult to get along with some children who perhaps they steal your toys or knock you down when you don't want to. As you reach teenage years, you find your place in the world, then you, you navigate through high school and then college and young adulthood, and you find various challenges of education, of expectations, of goals that you have for your life, or of pressures that you feel others are putting on your life, and you are trying to navigate all of this, and you find yourself perhaps wondering what the future holds. Life is a continual struggle. Will you trust the Lord? Adults, married, parents, grandparents, you find that you face this as you set out on life, as you set out into adulthood, as you seek to try to raise children or seek to try to raise or watch your children raise grandchildren. You wonder, what does this stage of life hold? Have any of you ever gotten past various trials and struggles and found yourself saying, oh, I'm glad that's over, I, 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 or, or I'm not glad that's over, I wish I had more trials to face? No, they always come around a new corner. They always rear their ugly heads when you don't expect them. Perhaps those of you that are parents or grandparents, you can resonate with this. Whenever Amanda and I were first expecting, well, Amanda was expecting, I was just kind of off to the side, um, I remember my mom telling me about how my sister and I both slept very differently when we were young babies. Namely, my sister slept and I didn't. And I remember telling my mom how I hoped that our baby would sleep more like Elizabeth, that's my sister, than I did. My mom said, Stephen, that's understandable, but here's what you need to understand. Your children, no matter if they're six weeks old, six years old, 16 years old, or 56 years old, they'll keep you up at night. That is the way in which challenges arise, isn't it, grandparents and parents? Yet what Luke is doing in this passage is where he's previously shown us Jesus' power over natural forces, and then Jesus' power over <clears throat> excuse me, spiritual forces. Now he's bringing us in and showing us Jesus' power over both disease and death, yet subtly underlying all of this, I think, is Jesus' power not over just disease and death, but his power over despair. 
And we get to this point where Luke and ultimately God wants us to see not just the power of Jesus, but the heart of Jesus. Yes, he's able to calm storms. Yes, he's able to drive out demons by the word of his mouth. But his heart also beats with profound compassion towards you. And Luke is saying, that's what you must see here. And as any careful, thorough investigation of the heart of Jesus must reveal, we must not only examine the heart of Jesus, but allow Jesus to examine our hearts. So think about your heart. Where do you turn when bad news arises? Or when something simply reminds you of past pain? Do you binge on food, binge on drink? Do you give yourself to mindlessly scrolling on your phone or unending binge watching something on TV? Do you retreat to the darkened corners of pornography? Or perhaps you cope by simply checking out It's easier to get through life by not caring, you might tell yourself. Do you tell yourself that if I work harder in the office or in the yard or just put my head down and don't wrestle with these emotions or with these things that I feel, then you will navigate these trials different or better? Perhaps trusting Jesus with all the burdens of your heart is like asking you to dip your toe in hot waters in a burning spring. You feel the warmth, but you don't know that you can jump in. This question before us, where do you turn for help? When life hits hard, when life wears you out, when you are exhausted, may I show you our precious Savior and our trustworthy Lord. See, you can turn to Jesus. This is what we see secondly. You can turn to Jesus, for He is personally near to us. This is in the second part of verse 42 as well as through verse 48. So Jairus came and begged Jesus to come and heal his daughter. Jesus began to journey to Jairus' home. But then something happens beginning in the second part of verse 42. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all of her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. So she came up behind Jesus and just reached out and just touched the fringe of his garment. And immediately this discharge of blood ceased. This woman's suffering was twofold. She had this medical condition that to this could not be healed. But this discharge of blood also made her ceremonially unclean when it came to worshiping at the temple. According to Old Testament law given by God, she was unclean. She had to stay away from the temple. So in a medical sense... She's unclean, but in another sense, she has to be asking questions of, I cannot worship God. What do I do? Have I been abandoned by God? Have I been forgotten by God? Am I just out of luck? Seeing all these people going to the temple week after week, even year after year, and she's staying away. Maybe that's the boat you're in. Maybe not for medical reasons, but maybe for whatever reasons. Maybe a broken relationship you've dealt with. Maybe depression that rears its ugly head. Whatever it is, you feel as if something keeps you apart from being able to trust in or come to God and worship Him. As the doctors sit in the room, exam room with you telling you, I don't know what else to do, 
you hear that and you think and you tear up and then you get in the car and drive home and you think God does not care. And that is what we are prone to hear when we are sorrowful, isn't it? Our tears ravage our hearts and then they tell us God does not care for you. Perhaps you've suffered the loss of a once precious relationship. Every time you think it's starting to get healed, you somehow get some kind of relational bump or nudge, and you find that bruise opens up again and starts to bleed. You read an old text message or old email, and everything comes rushing back, reminding you of the pain of that relationship. By God's grace, you know what Luke does in response to that? He shows us the compassion of Jesus. He doesn't just say, hey, he's powerful. He says, can I show you a smiling face? Can I show you the personal knowability of Jesus? Because what Luke is showing us here is he's showing us we can't just know about him. We must know him. It's the only way you'll make it. And Luke is not just showing us Jesus in order that we can grit our teeth and get through it. He wants us to see Jesus in a manner that absolutely captivates our hearts. I don't know if this woman felt like, okay, Jesus, I've tried everything else. I'll try him. Was she a woman of deep faith or a woman who had just exhausted all other avenues? I don't know. But in faith, she reached out to him and she was healed. You see the words of Jesus in verse 45. Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. Imagine Jesus passing through a busy marketplace, crowds brushing by, bumping into people all the time, and yet Jesus pauses and says, okay, who touched me? You're going to look at Jesus and say, uh, Jesus, probably three dozen people in the last two minutes have touched you. No, Jesus says, no, somebody has touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. When the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her in verse 48, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. How did this woman experience the power of Jesus while touching his garment, while everyone else brushed by and does not experience such power? I think it's because she reached out and grabbed hold of him in faith. She knew that she needed him. With full confidence, she grabbed hold of him. She didn't view Jesus as just like, okay, well, I'll try this. Or she knew, okay, this guy is the one that must make me well. And this is where we must tread carefully because it's possible to read this and think, okay, so I have this terrible illness or this loved one of mine has this terrible illness. And so, Stephen, are you just saying, if I just trust Jesus, if I have enough faith, I will get better? Remember, we've got to be wise. We've got to be careful. We've got to be faithful to Scripture as we navigate questions of sickness and health and healing. What I think Jesus is showing us here, what I think we are seeing, is how His miracles, His ability to bring healing gives us a foretaste of the coming kingdom of God when all disease and death will be eradicated. 
And so in looking back at Jesus' power over disease and death, as well as His power over disasters and demonic spiritual forces from the previous section, that helps us to look forward to a day when disease and death will be no more. But that's kind of cheap, right? Let's be honest. Look back, they were healed then. Look ahead, you'll be healed then. And you say, okay, what about me right now? Is that all you got, preacher? Is that all you got, Jesus? I think what this passage does is it gives us these promises. But then it also shows us you you don't need the promises alone. You need the one who makes the promises. You need the one who seals the promises in his life and in his death. You need the one who not only can heal these things, but who looks upon you with his smile and gives you himself. Because the lie, and we're going to see this when we conclude in a little bit, but but the lie here is believing that the power of Jesus is enough for us when we in fact need the person of Jesus. You see, what's happening here is, have you ever tried to read while riding in a car? Not, hopefully not while driving, but like, let's say you're the passenger, or you're riding in the back seat, and you're, you're, you're going on like a road trip, long car ride, getting bored, you start trying to read, and I don't know, if you're like me, if, if it's got turns and stops and starts and things like that, pretty soon you, you, you start to get a little woozy, you start to get a little car sick. So what's the, what's the remedy? What's the cure? Well, don't keep reading. Put the book down and, and try to look out. I remember when I was a kid and my parents would move me to the front seat of the car so I could look out at the road straight ahead. See, that's how life is. Life, life has a way of the turns and, and everything. If we aren't looking out straight ahead, if we're trying to keep our face down and, and trying to just focus on whatever we're navigating in life, whenever we start to get rattled, we start to get sick. Yet what Jesus does is in this passage, he shows us himself and he brings the woman before himself that, he might, that, that, that not only might she be healed, but that she might see his face and he might say, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. And so I think one of the pur- purposes of this passage, remember, it's not just disease and death, but it's also despair that he is addressing. One of the purposes for this passage is to show you and I that when you are in that sense of despair, even when you're not receiving the answers that you desire or you yearn for, you feel you even deserve. May you look to Jesus who has come to us and may you rest in Him and find that the cure is to look ahead and to stare right into His face and be held by nothing less than the very love of God. Perhaps you would find healing for all that ails you, but we should and must certainly pray for this. But we need the gracious warmth of our Lord. How do I get that gracious warmth of my God? You get it through His Word. You get it through dwelling in His Word. You get it through, 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 through immersing yourself in His Word and, and, and saying, Lord Jesus, I can't just check in on this. I need to dwell in it, and I need you to make yourself look glorious to me. You get it through making the same requests in prayer a little personal prayer tip for me only the first few minutes when i'm trying to pray whether it's in the morning if i'm still foggy or at night if i'm burdened by everything that has come across my pat my plate that day 
Normally, the first few minutes of prayer are just kind of blah, blah, blah. And you've got to drill down under that surface. That was a big theological term. You know, that, that's, theologians talk like that. You get under that, and then you start to, to allow Christ to mine the depths of your heart and what is truly ailing you. And you wonder, is it this problem? Or is it what this problem is telling me about the trustworthiness of my Lord? That's why we need to fellowship with one another. Seek to pray with one another, to seek to encourage one another from God's Word. It's not something we do just because it's right, but it's for the sake of our hearts being grounded in the grace and peace of God. And this is how in His mercy, Christ gives us Himself through His people. See, Jesus says, you want my power? You've got to be transformed by me. He says, you want my wonder to work in your life? You've got to allow me to start to do the work of turning over, turning around, turning upside down your life. Because until you want that, you want the power, but you don't want the person. You want to touch the garment and then disappear into the crowd. And Christ lays before us here, no, you will see me and you will know me whenever you stand before me and whenever you look me in the eye. So he is personally knowable. and He is personally able to sustain us and bear our hopes in him. So secondly, We can hope in Jesus, or thirdly, we can hope in Jesus because not only is he personally knowable, but he is triumphant over even death. So he tells this woman, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. What's interesting, and this might just be like my cynical, skeptical mind, but I I read this and I also think, okay, what's Jairus thinking during this encounter? Jairus like, "Uh, Jesus, my daughter, come on, let's go. We're going to my house. Well, the story takes a Sad turn, while he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house, verse 49, came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered, said, do not fear. Only believe and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. Let's just pause there. They get word that this 12-year-old girl has passed away. But Jesus seems to be living on another planet. Don't fear, only believe, and she will be well. Um, sir, she's, she's, she's not well. Then she passes, and, and he says, do not weep, for she is not dead, but, but sleeping. And... Jesus' day, there were, this might strike you as somewhat odd, but there were professional mourners or grievers that would travel to funerals or travel when families were grieving and, and they would come and mourn. And, and so, like, the closest comparison I can make is imagine, like, funeral home employees who are at the site or a coroner at the site who said, Jesus, oh, she's just sleeping. And they're like, no, no, we, we do this for a living. 
She's not just sleeping. She has passed. The absurdity is sometimes hard to miss because you know how the story both starts and ends. And you have this absurdity in the middle. But what does this absurdity reveal? In one sense, it reveals the absurdity of the Christian faith when held in comparison with contemporary worldview in which we live. The Christian faith holds before us a promise that death does not have the final word. And yet, we know that that is held so strangely by a world that is just cold and dark and where death is far too prevalent, far too common. And yet, what our Lord shows us is that this is not absurd because he's living in outer space. And it's not absurd at all because the one who is sovereign over death has entered into the picture. So verse 54, taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given her to eat. Jesus, by his word, brought this woman, this girl, back to life. You see, I think we saw his face in the section before, in his personal knowability. And then I think we see his power over the death of this 12-year-old girl. So we have three figures in the story. We have Jairus, we have the woman with the discharge of blood, and we have the 12-year-old girl. And he's showing them all and showing each of us Three uh, uh, very critical things. He's showing us that we must know that healing is found in him. That he is the one that is sovereign over disease and death. And yet he's also showing us, and here's why I get, remember I'm arguing before you that Jesus personally cares for us and the greatest needs we will ever face. He is preparing his people to see you follow me, and you think that no matter what may come, whether it's an obedience to me or just whatever hurdles, whatever, whatever burdens life throws at you, he's saying you follow me and not even death will be able to destroy you. Because I'm victorious over even death. But there's a warning as we conclude. There's a warning because we see in verse 56, and her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Now this is interesting because if you were here last week or if you, just, if you have your Bible open, you want to look back to verse 39, the conclusion of the passage when Jesus was in Gentile territory. What does he tell the guy who dri- he drives the demons out of him? What's he tell him? Verse 39, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And then it says he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. That's verse 39, but now in verse 56, Jesus says he charges them. Okay, imagine this. Just just put yourself in that room. You're a fly on the wall. 
Mom and dad, tears flowing, hugging their daughter. People are bringing water and food in that she's starting to drink. She's back alive. All seems well. And Jesus looks them in the eye and says, don't tell a soul what you have just seen. What? You're thinking here, like, like if, you're, if you're Peter and John and James, these three disciples who have been brought into the room to see this, they're probably looking at each other like, oh my gosh. They're thinking there's, there's been two miracles that have happened now. One was him raising this girl from the dead, but the more shocking miracle is him saying, don't tell anyone about it. Why? Here's why. This brings the whole story together in us understanding what he's doing. And us understanding not only what he's doing here, but us understanding what we make of this today. He's in Gentile territory when he drives the, demon out of the, the demons out of the guy and tells him, go tell everyone. They didn't know about him as the Lord. They didn't know about him as this miracle worker. So yeah, go tell them. They need to know. He's in Jewish territory where he's raised, where he's been teaching, where he's been doing a lot of previous miracles. He has a lot greater reputation. You saw this in verse 40 when it says he returned, the crowd welcomed him. Jesus is back. All right. What's he got for us today? Jesus knows his work is not done. He says, these people are going to take me by the hand and drag me down to the nearest funeral home and start saying, you start making everybody alive again. You think the crowds are pressing in around him before that's going to get a lot worse. He knows his work is not done. The warning here is against seeing the miracles of Jesus and trying to make of Jesus something that he does not make of himself. You see, because he, he in knowing his work is not done, he says, I've got to leave this house, and eventually, we're going to see it at the end of chapter 9, just in a couple of weeks, a few weeks. It tells us that he then turned his face to go towards Jerusalem. Luke features this long, over half of the second part of the book, or like the last 60% of the book, is Jesus journeying towards Jerusalem where what would happen? Because he's still up in the Sea of Galilee, northern regions of Israel. He's going to turn and start heading towards Jerusalem because he knows that is where he ultimately must die. And so what he knows is, and what he's showing us, saying, if you think I'm just here to heal you of your diseases, if you think I'm just here to even raise the dead to life, you're mistaken. Saying these are products of the greater work that I'm going to do, and that is where I'm going to reconcile you to God through me being a sacrifice for your sins. And so this brings the story together because here's what happens. We cannot look upon, in, in our sinfulness, in our unrighteousness, in our rebellion against God, we cannot look upon God. We cannot enter into his presence. He is perfectly holy, perfectly righteous, perfectly just. Our sin deserves his just wrath. And yet it is because Jesus finished his work in atoning for our sin on the cross. And then he finished the work of defeating our great enemy, death. And then it is through these things whereby death is defeated on our behalf and whereby sins are atoned for through his, through his death that then we can enter into his presence. And what can we do when we enter into his presence? We look upon the face of our Lord. See, this is what Jesus would have for us to see. He says, death is not your great enemy. Disease is not your great enemy. He says, there's something even lying under that that you must see is going to be your great enemy. It is your sin and your rebellion against God. And he's saying here, what I'm going to give you that can help undergird you as you wait upon me is the hope in my nearness to you and in my victory over death 
so that whenever disease, death, any other calamity comes your way, you can turn to me and bring your despair and lay them before me. That is what he shows us here. And so that is how this passage grabs hold of us. It gives us a Lord that is terribly relevant to whatever you face today. Because you might not be walking through a marketplace in Jerusalem with a discharge of blood, or you might not have your 12-year-old daughter who is dying, but you have the cries of your heart where you might not even realize what it is what you're crying out to, but you are crying out for a Savior. You're crying out for rescue. And Jesus stands before you and says, here I am. I still have my old Blockbuster membership card in the desk drawer in my basement. I suppose it serves as a memory of old, a relic of no use today. Dear Christian, do not allow your mind to put Jesus in that desk drawer, only gathering dust. You can hope in Jesus. He's triumphant over all things, even death. You can turn to him no matter the circumstances. He does not send an underling to you. You do not pray to him and you do not hear a voice saying, your call is very important to us, please wait. He gives you himself. He personally cares for us in the greatest needs we will ever face. And he shows us this in meeting the great need of this woman with crippling disease and this child who had even died. And if he shows his sufficiency in those things, he will show his sufficiency for you.